Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him My friends, and welcome, welcome to episode 4-450, yeah, of the Run Run Live podcast, coming to you live since 2007, yeah, since we, yeah, you know, you and I have arrived at this milestone of sorts, we've got an extra special show for you today, well, maybe not, but, you know, I try, somehow, I got past the rational screeners of the Boston Athletic Association and got a chat with Tom Grilk. I got him to do an interview with me. Tom Grilk is the CEO of the Boston Athletic Association, BAA. I had not planned for this to coincide with uh, the announcements around this year's Boston Marathon. You may have seen them, but it just did. So I just happened to be talking to Tom while he was being chased by NPR and all the other real news organizations. He literally hung up with me and then spoke with NPR. Apparently, there was some kerfuffle around letting 70,000 people run Boston who had not qualified. But, you know, all that typical stuff around Boston. Anyhow, I talked to Tom today. It's a good interview. He's a really well-spoken, and he's got a voice for radio, great voice. So, like I said before, I've been an admirer of Tom from afar for a long time. He grew up with the local marathon royalty, and he now gets to hang out with the marathon royalty of the world as the CEO of the BAA. It's a good chat. Tom's well-spoken, thoughtful guy, and a runner, of course, runner. And since we're arriving at a milestone episode... I figured I'd stick his interview in here. In section one, I'm going to talk about taking some time off to let yourself heal. Hmm. In section two, I'm going to talk about, well, I'm going to give you a primer on a business bingo term that's all the rage these days. Hopefully it'll be helpful for you when we all go back to work at some point. So I've had... A hilarious, or if you're from England, an hilarious couple of weeks since we last talked. So remember last time we talked, I said I tweaked my knee a little bit? Yeah, so that's a real thing. 
Haven't run a step since that fateful Friday night wheel workout. But it's really okay. I needed the break. And also, in these last two hilarious weeks, was my wife's birthday, our anniversary. That's always a dangerous time this week in March. Fraught with opportunities to make an ass out of myself. But this year, it was especially hilarious. I came down with some sort of plague. Not sure what it was. It might have been psychosomatic, even. Maybe stress-related. I took a test for that, you know, that currently popular plague. It wasn't that. That came back negative. But here are the hilarious symptoms. I got a horrible rash over some large swaths of my body. And by the way, large swaths would make a good band name. I had to go on a uh, a course of prednisone, which is a steroid, to take that itching down. And the fake doctor at the clinic told me I had scabies, which, although matches the symptoms, was entirely impossible, given that I've been locked in my house for 12 months and I don't live in the backwoods of Kentucky. Scabies. At the same time, I had three to four days of horrible gas, like drive the humans out of the house gas, like painful, I have to mute my Zoom call every three minutes gas. Yes. And this is the set of symptoms that my long-suffering wife had to contend with during our anniversary and her birthday. You can't make this stuff up. Well, you could, but it wouldn't be as funny. <laughs> so I'm out the other end of it, pun not entirely unintended, but I have, haven't done a workout in two weeks, and I find myself oddly humbled and sanguine. In other news, I also drove my mom down to Foxborough to get her second shot of the vaccine, which is a load off of everyone's mind, to get my mom all vaccinated. And poor Ollie, the killer collie, he's suffering. He's suffering through the inactivity as he creeps up on his second birthday. No runs for him. I did manage to limp in a, a walk or two with him, so I'm trying to keep him active. But he doesn't like to sit around. I'm going to give the knee a full three weeks off before I test it. One of the things I've learned over the many years that I've been doing this is that coming back too early does not pay. And I took my old bike, Fujisan, out for a roll with my buddies. I'll talk about that a little bit in the outro. And this week I'll try to work in some more bike rides and some strengthening yoga. And we'll see if we can't get back on the roads next week. And happy St. Patrick's Day. I think I read that I, me, myself, can claim Irish citizenship because my grandmother was an Irish citizen. And I'm not sure what that buys me. I've never been to Ireland, but would love to visit. So anyone there, you know, I have cousins there. So as I could just show up and say, hey, I'm your cousin. But anyhow, I like their poetry. I like their writing. Put that on the bucket list. Can you believe that it's been over a year since we started this pandemic thing, since I've gotten on an airplane. Holy cow, who knew? The world, it's changed so much in our lifetime. And change is where it's at, right? 
There's an old joke that everyone should embrace change, except, of course, the people who are telling you to embrace the change. Change is great as long as it happens to someone else, right? But it's a journey. And what I like talking to Tom about is that he's discovering new things, helping the BAA bring change to the Boston Marathon. That's a real skill of management to shepherd something with so much history through change and make that positive change. And if you look at happy people, successful people, and admired people, they haven't led calm and peaceful lives with no change, just the opposite. Their lives have been filled with rapid and abrupt change. How they dealt with it, or reacted to it, or led through it, through that change, that's what makes them happy and successful. So my friends, don't ask for that passive life that rolls down a smooth road from cradle to grave. Lack of change isn't peace. It's not happiness. Lack of change is stasis and ennui. Give a big hug to that bumpy road of life and smile your way through it. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Let's talk about healing, my friends. Is it okay to take time off to heal? Now, I haven't run in two weeks. Honestly, I haven't worked out in two weeks. Unless you count walking the dog. And it has been glorious. No, I'm not kidding. I had to stop due to injury, but my level of stress dropped significantly. Not having to figure out how to shoehorn in two hours of training every day, three or four plus hours on the weekend days, not having to fight the February cold and dark and ice, not having to choose between work and training, not being cranky, creaky, and sore every day, it has been like finally being able to breathe. And you know me, I'm pretty stoic when it comes to training. I commit to do the work. Sometimes the work fights back, but I persist because I like the outcome. And the outcome is me standing fit, lean, and strong at a starting line somewhere to some grand adventure. And I like that outcome so much I'm willing to work for it. A couple of weeks ago, I was finishing off the second of two big weeks with a hill repeat session, eight by one minute hard on tired legs. That's a hard workout. And as I was jogging down the hill, recovering from my last repetition, I had a sharp pain in my left knee on the weight-bearing motion of the foot plant. Not a constant pain, just that one spot of the foot plant and the toe off. And Saturday morning, it wasn't swollen or achy, but there was that sharp pain going up and down the stairs. So I canceled my long run to give it a couple of days because sometimes these sharp pains, believe it or not, are just old man pains. Seriously, any old guy will tell you, you get these random phantom pains. You'll just be running in a race or training and get a pain somewhere, but it goes away as fast as it shows up. But after a couple days, this pain was still there. So I asked my coach, I told him the symptoms, and he said, sounds like a cartilage tear, go to the doctor. I decided not to. I may eventually go to the doctor. But I think we've all been down this road as amateur athletes, and the doctor path isn't always the best way to get to where you need to get. 
Now, I'm not anti-doctor. I'm pro-doctor. But our healthcare system, even for the privileged like me, isn't the most direct route to the outcome I'm looking for. And I'm pro-outcome. So here's how it typically plays out. I call my primary care doctor, and I can't get him. I'll talk to his nurse. And if I'm lucky, they'll give me a referral to a knee doctor. If I'm not so lucky, my primary will want to see me first. He'll look at it and he'll say something like, looks like a cartilage tear. You should go see Dr. XYZ, the knee guy. So then I'll go and see Dr. XYZ, the knee guy. And he'll look at it and say, looks like a cartilage tear. Let's get some x-rays or maybe even a CAT scan. What the heck? And once we have the pictures, the doctor will say, eh, can't really see anything in there, but it's probably a cartilage tear. So take six weeks off and let's see how it goes. Now at that point, I'm two or three grand in, and I've lost one or two days of my time. And I'm at the stay off it for three to six weeks point. And like I say, I may still end up at the doctor for this, but I decided to skip to the last part and just take the three to six weeks off. I mean, I was burnt out anyhow. I've got nothing on the calendar. I can use the rest. And it's been glorious. I'm two weeks in, and the knee is feeling strong. The pain is barely there. I'm smart enough to give it another week. So let's talk about taking time off to heal. Let's take this opportunity to discuss this. When and why should you take time off? What happens to your fitness when you take time off? What are the benefits? How do you manage that time off? There's a long tradition of athletes taking time off. Not just forced time off due to injury. Scheduled time off after a season or after an event. Coaches over time across sports have always seen the benefits of giving their athletes a break. Many of the hardcore Ironman triathletes I know, and these guys never take a day off, they will take a month or more off after the season ends before they start training again in the spring. They know the value of taking that break. This time off, it's built into athletes' life cycles. It's time to step away and refresh. And why do they do this? Why does it help? Coaches and athletes know that even when you have recovery in your training plan, you never fully recover while you're training. There's this constant accumulation of small stresses that you stack up during a training campaign. And this is the whole point of a training campaign, to push your body constantly in consistency to get those gains in fitness as a response. So taking time off gives you time to fully recover. And I try to do this as well. But in 2020, with the pandemic, I really didn't have access to any cross-training facilities. So I ended up just sort of running through my break period because it's the easiest thing for me and I like running. The other benefit of taking time off is a mental break. It's an opportunity to step back from what you're doing and maybe reassess. Maybe set some new goals or come up with some new strategies. It definitely lowers the stress levels. And I do think there's a connection between mood and performance, between stress and recovery. 
If you're constantly under physical and mental stress, you don't get the full benefit of your workouts. You can accomplish some of the same renewal by taking smaller breaks during your training campaigns, but it's it's like taking a day off instead of going on vacation. Short breaks will recharge you for a couple days or weeks, but they don't give you that full reset. The most valuable thing for me is that these breaks give you back your objectivity. Instead of being inside the washing machine of miles and workouts, you can step back and look objectively at what the outcome is that you're looking for. So what happens when you take a break? What happens to your fitness? How fast do you lose it? you need to be worried about that? Well, think about this in terms of two things, aerobic fitness and structural fitness. Your aerobic fitness is your resting heart rate, your max VO2, your ability to go long. And you don't lose that aerobic fitness very quickly. You'll lose the race-specific fitness you've been building for an event fairly fast in a couple of weeks. That's sort of the fine-tuning bit of fitness. You'll lose that. But especially if you're a lifelong athlete, you will hold on to that base aerobic fitness, that ability to train for months. You won't be starting from scratch. Your engine will stay. So structural fitness is that adaptation of your muscles, your bones, your connective tissue. And most experts think you lose this faster. You are more likely to strain something or get some tendonitis or have sore muscles when you start up again. And I'm not sure if this is a result of fitness loss or just the shock of restarting an activity abruptly. But the bottom line is you lose that race fitness quickly, but you hold on to that base fitness and capability for a longer period. And of course, from the don't want to hear it again, broken record department, older people lose fitness faster. Younger people gain fitness back faster. And speaking of older people, a record is a polyvinyl chloride disc with analog audio recordings etched into it. And sometimes they broke. And when they broke in a certain way, they would repeat the same audio over and over again. So that's what they mean by it's a broken record. You can compensate for the loss of fitness by cross-training or doing strength exercises that are complementary to your chosen athletic pursuit, i.e. you can keep some of your aerobic fitness for running by riding the bike or whatever other fitness activity you want to do. You can keep or even improve your structural fitness by doing core work and yoga during your break. So I'm not a doctor. Did I mention I'm pro-doctor? But my advice would be this. It's okay to take a break, especially if you're injured. It's not worth rushing back into training until you're healed. In fact, take twice as much time off as you think you should. It'll pay off in the long run, pun totally intended. So find that appropriate strength and fitness activity to fill the gap. And enjoy these activities and get the benefit of a mental break from training as well. And when you come back, don't rush it. Ease into it. And it's okay to take some time off. You have my permission. And now for today's featured interview. So, Tom, Tom Grilk, give us the 200 words on who you are and what you do. You're the sort of the royalty of the Boston Athletic Association Boston Marathon. It's a real... 
privilege and honor to talk to you. I am just a guy who gets to, who has the privilege of working on these things. It's very much a who gets to do this sort of role. I, I am now the president, chief executive officer of the uh, BAA, and I've been doing that for a little over 10 years now. Prior to that, I had been involved with the BAA on the board of governors, had been the board chair for maybe seven years until Guy Morse, who was the first employee of the BAA uh, and executive director for a long time, decided he wanted to back off a little bit. And our board asked me if I would like to take over. And having spent the preceding many, many years as a uh, business lawyer, it seemed a, a very engaging second career, particularly where I'd been involved with the BAA as long as I had, having accidentally become the finish line announcer all the way back in 1979. And I kept doing that even while I was living in Asia, I would find a way to get back. So I have enjoyed immensely the opportunity to uh, work all the time on things at the BAA that I had worked on some of the time for a long time. Yeah. And I think it's a good fit. And the BAA finds people like you, like McGilvery, that are just perfect fits for those roles. And it's great synergy. It's fun to do. And Dave and I go back all the way to the, I don't know, late 70s or something, running both with the Greater Boston Track Club. He was fast, I was not. Uh, But there's some history there. Yep. And well, people of a certain age, as they say, might remember that iconic photo of uh, Billy Rogers with the GBTC hand-lettered uh, T-shirt winning the Boston Marathon and cutoffs, right? And uh, you know he, what? Yeah. These days, people probably don't even know what cutoffs were. Back when we were growing up, you couldn't buy shorts. So you took a pair of pants and you cut the legs off. That's what cutoffs it was, a to, it was a way to give a second life to a garment uh, and not have to pay for a second garment. Yeah. Billy uh, won the Boston Marathon in a pair of cutoffs. Well, and the uh, the singlet that he had on was picked out of a trash bin by Ellen and his wife. Yeah. And he hand wrote on it with uh, Sharpie or Black Magic Marker, GBTC, Greater Boston yep. Track Club, right? Iconic photo. So people know the BAA as it exists today, but people may or may not know the history going back to the 1800s. Are you also sort of a purveyor of that history? This, I get the impression that it was a bunch of sort of 1800s industrialists, you know, these guys with bowler hats, smoking cigars, betting on races that set this all up 150 years ago. Well, it was set up in 1887, and it was in the model of what was then maybe best described as a privileged men's athletic club. It was in Boston what, say, the New York Athletic Club was. And the New York Athletic Club still a vibrant institution, by no means just for men these days. But the Boston Athletic Association built a clubhouse, in quotes, uh, a very fancy athletic building that stood where the newer part of the Boston Public Library is now, right across from the Lenox Hotel. And indeed, that's where the Boston Marathon finish line was for a very long time. And it became a pretty broad, active enterprise with this athletic club with gyms and places to work out. But there was also a rowing facility, an equestrian facility, a golf course. You can still go to Stoneham, Massachusetts and play at the Unicorn Golf Club. Guess what? The Unicorn Golf Club meant that it was the BAA. I grew up as a kid playing golf there, having no idea that that was true. The mission of the BAA is really unchanged since 1887, which uh, in a very few words is to promote health and fitness. And we have those words written on the wall in the office these days. Original charter, only slightly modified now. The notion of, of trying to help people be fit and enjoy the benefits of an active lifestyle goes all the way back to 18... 
1887. In 1896, when the Olympic Games were revived in Athens, the BAA sent the majority of Team USA to Athens. Most of the rest of it was from the New York Athletic Club. And the BAA came back with the greatest number of gold medals, but also came back with the memory of having seen a marathon race, which literally went from marathon in Greece, where the battle was fought in 490 BC, into the stadium that's still there in Athens. And they thought, gee, let's do that here too. And so a year later in 1897, the Boston Marathon was set up going out to what was then Ashland, set up there. At some level, I guess, there was the idea of recreating some part of uh, the route of Paul Revere's ride. Also, if you had to get people from Boston out to a starting line from which they would run back to Boston, how do you do that in 1897? You can't put them all in buses or an Uber. So they followed the train tracks which in turn led to those various train stations being the official checkpoint for the marathon for decades. I remember the first time running the marathon, I got to Framingham and there was a unicorn sign, a big triangle, first checkpoint, six and seven eighths miles. Right. Not particularly helpful for a runner, but there was a telegraph station there. So it was good for the media way back when. Right. I believe there's a big clock there as well on one of the buildings or the mills where they could do like they had a built-in time check. So they ran it by that. Well, yeah, you went by what was the telecron clock place in Ashland. And then you got to 10 miles and there was that big bank clock right in the middle. Right. Of anyway, the BAA was this quite vibrant athletic institution up until the 1930s. And then when the depression came, the BAA went bankrupt. And soon all that was left was the Boston Marathon and the BAA indoor games at the Boston Garden. And those lasted until about 1970. And then it was only the marathon uh, that was conducted by the, the BAA. Yep. And you weren't around in management then, but you certainly remember in the late 70s and the 80s when you were competing, how the marathon had to do a pivot, had to sort of remake itself because it, that's when prize money came in. Before that, it was this sort of lofty religious sentiment of nobody should get paid Athletes should all be amateurs and New York and London and other places, they were giving people money. So Boston was losing the elite and they well, had to pivot. The, the, the problem at the time was not so much that there was more money elsewhere. The money came in with the greatest impact in Boston in 1986 when John Hancock came along as principal sponsor. And it was John Hancock led by David D'Alessandro who came up with the idea of let, let's award serious prize money. And it was others who then really had to follow suit. And I think we still lead the way in, in prize money. What led to the change for the Boston Marathon was that the race was really not all that well conducted. And people began to complain about it. Jerome Drayton won the race in, I don't know, 77 maybe, and had the most unfavorable things to say about the race and the organization of it. And in the years to come, that discontent continued. And finally, Mayor Flynn in Boston said, look, BAA, you either get this right or I'll give it to somebody else. You know, it's, not, it's not like the BAA owned the course. And so that led to a need to find a way to improve things. And that in turn led to finding a, a sponsor. Prudential had been involved. I remember being invited to a meeting at the top of the hub. And I went with Bill Rogers, Joe Cannon, the sports writer, and Tommy Leonard, the bartender, yep. to talk about what could be done to improve the race. And we said, <laughs> you know, do things like provide water along the way. <laughs> Put, put clocks at measured mile marks so people can tell what they're doing. It was that simple. But it was really Mayor Flynn who who drove the necessity of improving things. And then John Hancock, who really made everything happen. David D'Alessandro and John Hancock really 
brought the Boston Marathon into the modern era. And we owe them an enormous continuing debt for that and all that they have done since then. Yeah, it's amusing for me to think that it's not that long ago that the elites, they had to bring their own water. They had to fight crowds. People would run on the course. And there's that one um, famous finishing line picture where the guy's getting blocked by the state police on the motorcycle. And the finish line itself telescopes down to like one body width with the crowd surging in from both sides. Yeah, it's, no, uh, that wasn't that long ago. No, no. And I remember running in those days. The first time I did was 1976. I was not good. I was struggling to qualify and failed on multiple occasions before finally making it. But yeah, there were a lot of people out there. And in those days, it was very odd as I would come running through Wellesley, Newton, uh, Brookline, Boston, people from my law firm or other places would look at you like, what in the world? How did you get here? <laughs> Yeah, it's different. Yeah, we'll get back to that. That's your famous TEDx uh, speech there about uh, how in Boston, everyone owns the marathon, right? We'll get back to that because that's hard to explain to people, that feeling, being local and what the marathon means to us. But I want to take an opportunity to thank you for that podcast you guys were putting out for a while, the Boston Marathon podcast. The two, you you do a fantastic job on it. You got a natural calling there. And (laughs) Aren't you nice? Thank you. The Tadia uh, McFadden interview was just, that was great to hear what she's gone through and her attitude. And then also when you and Desi were talking about the 2018 marathon as sort of insiders, I thought that was sort of a little inside baseball. That was great. I love that. She told me things I did not know until we had that conversation. Yeah. 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 Because I was there. I was on the course in 2018 and that was epic. So that was really fun to listen to. So you seems like you stopped doing them, though. You got to spin that up again. You got to keep that going. I expect we'll get back to it. Yeah, I certainly enjoyed doing it. For me, it was largely speaking to people who I already knew pretty well. So it was pretty easy to arrange. Yeah. Now, you you know the secret, right? We get to talk to important and uh, interesting people. Mm, yeah. So bringing us back around to the last couple of years, I guess I could look at it this way. I've had the privilege of being involved in a lot of different Boston marathons, right? I ran through 2013, 2014, the hot years, the 2018. I've had the privilege and I ran a virtual marathon last year. So this year, you guys just opened up to 70,000 folks. It sounds like you're going to squeeze down the actual in person field to some manageable number for the fall and Columbus Day. So two things. One is, I think it's good that we have this latitude to do these sort of things these days and still keep the race alive. But of course, you're getting some blowback from that. Some people are saying, oh, you're ruining the tradition of the race and that sort of thing. So what are your thoughts on that? What's going on in the fall? First of all, as you say, there haven't been too many, quote, normal years in the last decade or so. They have been filled with challenges, all different, it seems. But one thing we've seen that is that, that from challenge comes resilience, from challenge comes opportunity. And you want to keep your eyes open to see where the opportunities may lie when you're going to have to do things a little differently from the way you may have planned. And certainly none of us planned for a pandemic. And if I step outside the kind of limited realm of the Boston Marathon itself and look at what's happened in society over this last year, and it's almost exactly a year since we announced the what was first the postponement of the 2020 Boston Marathon. One of the things that has happened is that many more people kind of being stuck, not going to work, not going very many places, have taken to going outside and getting a little exercise, whether they walk, run, some combination of the two. And in doing that, that's at least one 
beneficial element of the uh, the law of unanticipated consequences. Uh, if you have a pandemic, pretty much everything that happens is going to be bad. But a little bit more focus from people on their personal fitness and well-being is at least one modest little silver lining that comes out of that. So for us, what should we do about that? With a mission going all the way back to the 1880s to promote health and fitness, if there's an opportunity to get more people pursuing an active lifestyle, maybe it's part of our job to support that and find ways to include more people and perhaps include them in a different way, for sure. I understand completely why there is some reaction to the effect that we are making it too easy for some people, that for a very long time, a lot of people have worked really hard to do what is maybe the most difficult thing in the Boston Marathon, which is getting to the starting line. They've had to work hard to qualify. They've tried and failed and finally make it. I know what that feels like. I'm one of those people. But now, if we have an opportunity to help to bring a a healthy lifestyle to people by trying something different in this year of the 125th anniversary of the Boston Marathon, we had to give a lot of thought to what that might mean to us. What part of our mission should we be looking to? And so for, for this year, we'll see if we can't kind of send the Boston Marathon around the world as a kind of encouragement to people to pursue an active lifestyle and a different way to experience the Boston Marathon. It will still be difficult and and I hope special for people to qualify and come run from Hopkinton to Boston on a course that is unlike any other as an experience, an overall experience, but also give some other people a way to at least have some element of that experience as part of their own journey toward personal wellness. If I look at the way that people have related to sport over many years, it keeps changing. Now, for us at the Boston Marathon, it hasn't changed that much. We now have a, a much better organization than we did some decades ago. But it is people who come to Boston and go run on the course. And the experience is largely limited to that. If I look at the way people relate to sports in other ways, once upon a time, if you were a baseball fan and you wanted to experience baseball or football or anything else, you had to go to the stadium, to the venue, to sit there and experience it. That was the only way you could do it. And then it began to change. Then you could listen to it on the radio. And that brought it to more people. And then you could watch on TV. And that began to recreate yet further the experience of being there. The premier experience was still being at the place where the game was being played. But there were other ways you could do it as well. And it served to expand interest without taking away from the experience at the principal place. So we'll see this year whether something similar can go on. Will one group of people be satisfied and inspired by the opportunity to come run in front of hundreds of thousands of people in a way that most people can never do in any sport, while at the same time others get to enjoy some of that experience and be motivated to a healthier lifestyle by doing something far away, particularly at a time this year when travel remains difficult and uncertain. People are worried about disease. So so that's what's going on. I understand that there are some who are troubled by the change and I, I bear them no ill will, uh, whatever. I, I understand it. Change is not always easy. Now I'm with you. I think it's a good thing. I think the more we can make the tent bigger without sacrificing that unique unicorn quality of Boston. It's great. The woman named Erin Strout, who wrote a, a very nice piece about that in uh, Women's Running, and I thought it captured it all very nicely. It's one of these things you read it. It captures much better than you did as you were thinking it through what's actually going yeah. on. 
it's great to read somebody write about what you just did and say, well, yeah, but gosh, you, you sure said it better than I did. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, I think it's a tempest in a teapot, as we would say. There's always something going on, right? When you ever have something this high value, this historic, this personal to people, there's always going to be some sort of ruffled feathers in one way or the other, right? But I also don't want to diminish people's reaction who are unhappy. Uh, they have worked really hard to achieve something. And if it feels like that's somehow being diminished or kind of handed over to someone else who didn't have to work as hard, that's uh, a perfectly understandable reaction. I, I experience a sense of gratitude that their feelings about the event are as intense and as personal as they are. We'll do everything we can to make sure that their personal experience here continues to be the best it can be. Yep, that's great. And just to pivot from that to the time we have remaining here, a couple of minutes we have remaining, just trying to help people understand what's so special about Boston, because we grew up here, we're from here, and we understand how it's part of, uh, like you said, and it's not just the runners, right? It's the whole uh, city, the whole state, the whole region owns the race, right? And you grew up in a time like I did when people, they said, I'm going to run the marathon. You never asked which marathon, right? Because we all knew what they meant, right? And even people we adopt, right? So I have friends who I met through running who come in from California. They come in from St. Louis. They come in from wherever, and they're attached now as part of that story, as part of that journey. It's almost like it's a big story, and we're all part of that story, right? Yeah, people come here, and I, I think they feel the embrace of uh, the importance of the marathon to a great many people who live around here. It has been a tradition for 125 years. There are families that for generations come out to cheer pretty much in the same place that they always have. So whether you're a spectator or a runner or a volunteer or just someone who lives around here, it's a time when Boston is on the, the world stage. You and I have both done some traveling around the world. And generally, when people in faraway places think of Boston, they think of pretty much three things, Harvard, MIT, and the Boston Marathon. And for people who live around here, it's, it's sort of nice to be recognized for something that's good. Yeah. And I think that's the point, right? When we have the marathon here, it brings out the best in everybody, right? whereas other things may bring out the worst in everybody. This certainly shows you Boston in the area the way it should be shown, right? Yeah, for people who come here to run, whether it's before the race or during it, pretty much everybody's nice to them. And if they fall down and, and get a bloody knee or nose or something like that, spectators along the way, pick them right up or do whatever they can to be helpful. What One running knows that one is kind of among friends that they have yet to meet. Last question for you as I move you towards the exit here. So you ran Boston a few times. What would, what was your Boston experience? Did you do the classic go out too fast and crash on the hills or uh did you do the the PR run? What was your experience like? The first one I ran was 1976. It was 100 degrees and uh <laughs> and so I did it anyway, which was about as silly as one could be. I only ran three of them before I fell into the job of being announcer. Yeah, in 1978, the last one, in terms of going out too fast, I went out with a fellow named Jack McDonald, who was a four-minute miler at Boston College and the founder of the Greater <laughs> Boston Track Club. And when we got when we went through five miles, we were just under a six-minute pace. I thought, oh, excrement, this isn't good. Uh, <laughs> and I then heard, just shortly after that, I heard somebody playing the... Uh, the BG song, Stan Alive, out of Saturday Night Fever coming. And that gave me the beat that I needed the rest of the way. And I just ran with that in my head. And it got me to 254, which was the best Boston I ever had. Yeah, that's outstanding. And that right. was fun. And the next year I went out and 
the qualifying time got lowered and a couple of people paced me to get to 249, which was the fastest I ever did. And then I became the finish line announcer. I never ran again, never used that PR as a qualifying time. Well, you can do what, go out with McGilvery and run it at night. Right? Uh, no, no. <laughs> yeah, by the time that day is over, well, we appreciate drained. We appreciate all you do and your dedication to the old lady that is the Boston Marathon, and uh, hope to see you around at some point, Tom. Appreciate Chris, your time. that. Would be very nice indeed. It is uh, very nice to have the opportunity to chat with you this way. All right, talk to you soon. Thank you. All right, thank you. Bye. Bye bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. This one's going to be fun. I actually posted this on LinkedIn as well for other smart people to enjoy. This is called Digital Transformation. Today, I'm going to share some digital transformation concepts with you. So let's start with my favorite questions. Why and why do you care? So the why is because we are in the middle of a disruptive event. This disruptive event will certainly remake the way businesses operate and will likely change many other things that will impact us all. And that's pretty much the why do you care. It's the impact, that impact. Because in one way or another, this disruptive process is going to impact you, may already be impacting you. So as a public service, I'm going to walk through it and simplify. And hopefully this will be helpful to understand the changes when you see them for your prosperity, or at least your sanity. I will attempt to give you context. Let's dive right in. What do people mean by digital transformation? Well, it is a combination of forces and emerging technologies that are converging right now to cause a disruptive shift in business and society. The fourth industrial revolution is a related term. I see this phrase used more often internationally. For our purpose, digital transformation and fourth industrial revolution, we're going to say they're the same thing. It's a convergence of forces and technologies that is causing and will cause a disruptive shift in business and society. And I'll get to those technologies, but first, let's start with the concept of evolution versus revolution. So evolution is a process whereby things slowly adapt over time. Famously introduced by Mr. Darwin in the 1800s with his trips to the Galapagos, he was able to theorize that the specific adaptations in finches were due to specific environmental pressures over time. So for this conversation, the important point is that evolution is a slow and relatively stable process of adaptation, whereas revolution, or transformation by contrast, is an abrupt change. Now, in the natural world, the examples cited are the extinction events or episodes throughout history. And these events, like the 15-kilometer-across Chicxulub asteroid 
that whacked into the Yucatan Peninsula 66 million years ago and put the Dinos out of business, they create massive change, or disruption. This massive change not only creates massive destruction, but also creates opportunity. In our asteroid example, for instance, there was a certain cohort of furry, warm-blooded, rat-like creatures hiding in the bushes that did really well once the dinosaurs were gone. And what you see when you look at history, either on the epic scale or the shorter human scale, is not a straight line. What actually happens is intermittent periods of stability or evolution, separated by constant and repeated disruption events that reset everything. And that's the difference between evolution and revolution. The trick is, really, that you cannot predict when disruptive events are going to happen. If you could, they wouldn't be disruptive. In the business world, revolution happens when a new innovation disrupts that period of stability. The examples are, of course, the industrial revolutions, First steam, second electricity, third digital, and now this fourth industrial revolution or digital transformation. So there you go. That's your baseline. So what are the innovations that the prognosticators are claiming are or will precipitate this next digital transformation? Well, I'm glad you asked. There are four technologies. These four and the interplay between them is what we are here to talk about today. You ready? You excited? You at the edge of your seat? Drum roll, please. Number one, the Internet of Things, or IoT. Number two, big data. Number three, the cloud. And number four, artificial intelligence, specifically machine learning. Hold on to your hats. We're going to breeze through these and contextualize why the pundits think these technologies are going to disrupt. First, holding the prize for the most non-sexy moniker of a technological innovation ever is the Internet of Things. What is this? Well, think of IoT as all those smart devices that are connected to the Internet. There are billions of them. The smart speaker in your house, the chips in your car, your phone, the cameras everywhere, the sensors in everything, everywhere. In the last couple of decades, these sensors have gotten smarter, and they have been engineered into everything. But why do we care, and how does it create a revolution? Well, the answer is that as soon as these billions of devices got installed and started to phone home, they created billions of bits of data about everything. All this data from your houses, your cars, your phones, your machines, your sensors, all this data is being collected at an exponential rate. And that creates a problem and an opportunity. And this opportunity is known as big data. At the same time, these billions of IoT devices got connected and started phoning home our ability to collect and store large amounts of data evolved. 
we have the ability to collect all this data, store it, and rapidly convert and consume it. And this data is something we have never before had access to. Why? Because we didn't have the compute power to deal with data at this scale. It was too big for the tools we had, and we had no place to store it. But now we do have a place to store this big data. It's called the cloud. The cloud is simply a bunch of hardware sitting in giant data centers and connected to the Internet. With that giant pool of hardware, you get two enabling things. The first is unlimited storage. The second is unlimited compute power. Simply put, with the cloud, problems that used to be too big are no longer too big because we can throw unlimited fast computing at them. So here we are. We've got billions of little devices collecting big buckets of contextual data about everything and pumping them into a cloud computing environment that has unlimited capacity to work with the data. So now what? So now we get the secret sauce. Artificial intelligence, or more specifically, machine learning. Simply put, simply put, there is a class of algorithms that were designed to derive insights and knowledge from big data sets. We couldn't use them before because A, we didn't have the data, and B, we didn't have the compute power. Now we do. Think of machine learning as pattern matching. It's the same way you might look at a painting and say, hey, there's a mouse hidden behind that tree, and it's blue. But think about the complexity of what went on in your brain to get to that insight. You have to know about mouses. You have to know about colors and hiding and paintings and trees. The learning part of machine learning is that we can teach these algorithms to do these things by giving them training data and telling them what to look for. And the more data they have, the better they get. You might say that doesn't sound very useful. But whereas you and I, we can study one painting, the machine algorithms can study billions of paintings, and they can do it quickly. The combination of the data and these new classes of algorithms means that we can predict things we could not before. We can get down to a level of specificity that we never could before. And here's the part that you should pay attention to. We have machine code that can do the same thing as human professionals, do it better, do it faster, and do it at scale. I'm talking to you, <laughs> all you well-educated, highly paid white-collar professionals. The reason you care about the digital revolution, the digital transformation, is that it is going to automate much of what you do, much of what we do. And that, my friends, is why the business pundits are all aflutter about the digital transformation. Because in 99.99% of the companies in the world, the largest expense... The largest risk is humans. 
And companies will embrace this revolution because if they don't, others will. And those that don't will end up, as they say, on the BBC in the dustbin of history. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, we have digitally transformed through to the end of episode 4-450 of the Run Run Live podcast. No algorithm will be able to run my marathons for me, I think. Probably not. We set the clocks back. One less hour of time to get stuff done. Yeah, so my I went out with my old man running group this morning for seven miles, but I didn't run. I rode my bike with them. I rode Fujisan along beside them as they ran. My buddy Frank is coming back up to speed since having his second hip done at the end of the summer. <laughs> and Tim, my buddy Tim, has decided just to ignore that weird feeling in his knee and run anyhow. And my buddy Brian is chugging along a couple runs a week. And these are all old Boston Marathon guys, right? Like me. Uh, these are sub three hour marathon guys. So we're just like those old guys down at the coffee shop now. Good to see him. The knee feels better. A previous version of me probably would have taken it for a test run today, but I'm going to give it another week to heal before I test it. I'm going to start easing back into things this week. With the longer days, I should be able to get out on Fujisan, my old road bike, a few times. And I'll start working in some long yoga sessions for strength and stability. And then I'll spin up the running slowly, or not. I can use the brake. We'll see. I do have an itch, though. I have that itch, that itch to get out. No, not that itch I had last week. That's gone. The prednisone took care of it. Another itch, an itch to get out and see new places. And maybe that means run some new races now that the pandemic seems to be waning instead of waxing. I'm up to 11 episodes of my new Apocalypse podcast, a new Apocalypse serial story podcast. And I do appreciate any podcast love that you can give me. I have to figure out a way I can get some more eyeballs on it. And I really don't have the time or the capital for marketing. I need all the help I can get. You can search for it on your favorite podcatcher as After the Apocalypse. Or just Google that and you'll probably find it eventually. Although there's a lot of books and movies and plays and things with similar names. Is there anyone who doesn't have a podcast these days? It seems like everyone just sort of paired up in the universe to interview each other, and now everybody has a podcast. Anyhow, got one new product, one new product, new product to test out. It's called the Caffeine Bullet, and the owner sent me some to try. It's a caffeine chocolate candy with 100 milligrams of caffeine in each candy. So apparently they're much more efficient at inserting caffeine into your system on the run. I haven't tried them yet. I do like my caffeine, though. And I think these might be a good kick in the ass late in long runs. The timing is kind of poor, though, with me not currently training. But I'll let you know when I get to them. I'll let you know. And I know I've been a bit maudlin recently with the long pandemic, the cold, dark days of winter, my training not going great, my work being a pain in the butt. It all sort of weighs on a guy. But it's not a reason to despair. It's a reason to celebrate. We get to do these things. My life is filled with health and prosperity. I've got things I want to do. I've got things I get to do. You do too. 
You may feel like you're shoveling water, but you get to choose. You could walk away. You could buy a van, sell your house. No one's stopping you. And you, my friend, whether you believe it or not, are in control of your life. And I always liked uh, when talking to Dave McGilvery and asking him what his favorite adventure was. Of all his adventures, what's your favorite adventure? Because he'll always say the next one. And he'll say it with conviction. And I love that attitude. I do have a lot of things that I want to do. And uh, I have a lot of things that, I, that I'm doing. Because I want to do them. And you've got a lot of things you want to do. You should just start doing them. <laughs> and as a crunchy old New Englander, another crunchy old New Englander said, The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. But I have promises to keep. And miles to go before I sleep. And miles to go before I sleep. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Episode 450. Wow, that's something, huh? 450. Wow, that is something. We must be getting old. Just threw Ollie out. I said he had to leave while I recorded. So here we go. 450.